You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, who are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. This is a reading of a collected work, number 107 by Rudolf Steiner, entitled Disease, Karma, and Healing, Spiritual Scientific Inquiries into the Nature of the Human Being. This is Lecture 9, given in Berlin on the 16th of November, 1908. Continuing from the start we made a week ago, when we considered different forms of illness and human health, over the course of this winter we will look in ever greater detail at related matters. All our observations will culminate in a more precise understanding of human nature in general than we have gained so far through anthroposophy. Today's observations, as part of the overall sequence, will address the nature and significance of the Ten Commandments of Moses, since we will need to return to this later. First we will discuss the profound significance of terms such as original sin and redemption, and will find that these concepts can regain their meaning in the light of what we have accomplished most recently, also in the field of science. To do so, however, we first need to examine the fundamental nature of the remarkable document that has come down to us from ancient days of Hebrew history and appears to us as one of the most important building stones of the temple established as a kind of antechamber to Christianity. Such a document, particularly, can show us how little the form of the Bible we know today accords with it. The details I presented in the last two public lectures on, quote, the Bible and wisdom, close quote, will have given you the sense that it would be wrong to think that I was just citing certain passages taken from the translations and that such precise details are of no real importance. To think like this would be very superficial. Just recall for a moment that, as I pointed out, a correct translation of verse 4 of the second chapter of Genesis ought to be, quote, What follows here will tell of the generations or of what issues from heaven and earth, close quote. And that in Genesis, the same word is used here for the descendants of heaven and earth, as later in the passage, quote, this is the book about the generations, or the descendants of Adam, close quote. In both cases, the same word is used. And there is great significance in the fact that where the human being is described as coming forth from heaven and earth, the same word is used as later when speaking of the generations descended from Adam. Such things are not just some kind of pedantic amendment that slightly improves the translation, but they go to the very heart not only of our translation but of our understanding of this ancient document of humanity. We actually draw on the wellsprings of our anthroposophical worldview, you can say, in regarding one of the most important tasks of this worldview, of anthroposophy itself, 
as being to give back the Bible to humanity in a true form. Here we are primarily interested in what has been said in general about the Ten Commandments. These Ten Commandments are regarded today by most people as laws decreed in the same way that some modern government might enshrine them. It will be admitted, of course, that these laws contained in the Ten Commandments are more comprehensive and more general and hold good beyond their particular time and locality. Yet, although regarded as more general laws, people will think that really they just have the same effect or goal as modern legislation. In fact, this overlooks the real life blood that pulses in these Ten Commandments. We can tell that this has been misperceived because all the translations accessible to us today have unwittingly incorporated a really very superficial explanation that does not accord at all with the spirit of these Ten Commandments. If we engage with this spirit, you will see how the meaning of the Ten Commandments is integrated into observations we have embarked on. Although it may appear as if we are taking an irrelevant sideways leap here in considering them. Above all, as a kind of introduction, allow me to attempt to offer a somewhat fitting German version of the Ten Commandments, and only then proceed further. This translation, if one can call it that, will require some further honing, but the lifeblood the real meaning will first be conveyed with this German version, as we will see directly. If we translate the sense of the Ten Commandments, not translating word for word with a dictionary in hand, which will lead to the worst possible outcome, since what counts is the essence of the words, the whole soul significance, S-O-U-L, they had for their time, we get the following, quote, First Commandment, I am the Eternal Divine, that you sense within you. I led you out of the land of Egypt, where you could not hearken to me in you. Henceforth you shall not place other gods above me. You shall not accept as higher gods whatever, working out of the earth or between heaven and earth, shows you an image of something that shines above in heaven. You shall not worship what of all this is lower than the divine in you. For I am the Eternal in you that works into the body and therefore works upon coming generations. I am divine nature whose influence persists. If you do not recognize me in you, I will vanish as your divine nature in your children, grandchildren and great-grandchildren and their body will grow barren. If you recognize me In you, I will live on as you through to the thousandth generation and the bodies of your people will flourish. Second commandment. You shall not speak of me in you in error. For every error regarding the I, capital, in you will corrupt your body. Third commandment. You shall divide working day from feast day, so that your existence becomes an image of my existence. For what lives in you as I made the world in six days, and on the seventh day lived within itself. 
Therefore your actions and those of your sons and your daughters and your servants' actions and those of your cattle and of all else that dwells with you shall be directed outwardly for only six days. But on the seventh day your gaze shall seek me. Fourth commandment. Uphold the ways of your father and mother so that you shall remain in possession of the estate that they have acquired through the power I have developed in them. Fifth commandment, you shall not commit murder. Sixth commandment, you shall not break wedlock. Seventh commandment, you shall not steal. Eighth commandment, you shall not belittle the worth of your neighbor by speaking untruth of him. Ninth commandment, you shall not look enviously upon the property your neighbor owns. Tenth commandment, you shall not look enviously upon your neighbor's wife nor upon the helpmates and other beings through whom he finds his further advancement. Close quote. Let us ask what these ten commandments chiefly tell us. We will see that both in the latter part, where this is less apparent, as well as the first part, the Jewish people are told through Moses that the power that proclaimed itself to Moses in the burning thorn bush with words designating its name, quote, I am the I am, close quote, Ayeh, Asher Ayeh, is henceforth to dwell with them. I mentioned that other peoples at that point in evolution were not able to recognize the I am the original ground of the fourth aspect of the human being, so clearly or vividly as was intended for the Jewish people. The God who poured a drop of his being into human beings, so enabling the fourth aspect of the human entelechy to become the bearer of this drop, the I-bearer, comes to his people's awareness through Moses. We can therefore say that the Ten Commandments were founded on the view that Yahweh God labored and worked to further humanity's upward evolution to reach this point too. Yet it is also true that the work of spiritual entities is already underway before their influence is clearly perceived. What worked in ancient peoples of pre-Mosaic times took effect in them, it is true, but it was only proclaimed as a concept and idea, as an active power within the human soul by Moses to his people. The whole encompassing effect of feeling oneself to be an I to the degree experienced by the Jewish people was made clear to them, and this was the important thing. In this people, we must regard the Yahweh being as a kind of transitional being, Yahweh is the being who pours the divine drop into each person's own human individuality. Yet he is at the same time a god of the whole race. The individual Jew still felt himself, in a sense, to be united with the I that also lived in Abraham's incarnation and streamed down through the whole Jewish people. The Jewish people felt connected with the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It was an era of transition, and things would only change radically when Christianity was proclaimed. But what was to come to earth through Christ 
is proclaimed in advance in the Old Testament, above all through what Moses tells his people. Thus we see the full power of I realization pour gradually into the Jewish people during the course of history described in the Old Testament. The Jewish people were intended to become fully aware of the effect on a person's whole life of no longer living in a kind of unconscious state about the I, but instead learning to feel within them himself the I, the I am, the I am, as the name of God, in its full effect on the inmost soul. Today people have only an abstract sense of these things. If we speak of the I today and what is connected with it, they hear it as mere words. At the time when this I was first proclaimed to the Jewish people in the figure of the ancient Yahweh God, they felt this I as the influx of a power that enters the human being and changes the whole configuration of his astral body, etheric body, and physical body. And this people had to be told that the conditions governing their life and health were different when the I did not yet live in their soul as awareness, that health and sickness had previously been governed by different conditions than they were now becoming, and that this change would affect their whole lives. It was therefore important to describe to the Jewish people the new conditions they were entering into, that they should no longer merely look upward to heaven or downward to the earth when speaking of gods, but should gaze into their own soul. Looking inward into the soul in a truthful way invokes right living and works all the way through into health. This awareness certainly underlies the Ten Commandments, whereas a false view of what entered the soul as the eye withers a person and destroys him. We need really only study historical documents to discover how little these Ten Commandments were intended as merely external laws, but instead were thought of in the way I have described, as something of the most incisive importance for the health and wholesomeness of astral, etheric, and physical body. But who reads books today with care and accuracy? One need only read on a few pages in in the Bible. Let me read that again. One need only read on a few pages in the Bible to find, in a further elaboration of the Ten Commandments, that the Jewish people were told of their effects on the whole human being. There it is stated, "I will take sickness away from the midst of thee. There shall nothing cast their young. There shall nothing cast their young, nor be barren in thy land." The number of thy days I will fulfill. This means when the I comes to expression in a way that is permeated by the nature of the Ten Commandments, one of the results will be that you cannot fall sick and die in the flower of your years, but that through the properly grasped I, something will be able to stream into the three bodies astral body, ether body, and physical body which will allow you to reach the full tally of your years, so that you stay healthy into ripe old age. This is clearly stated. But it is necessary to delve deeply into these things. Modern theologians, however, do not find this so easy. 
a popular little pamphlet whose cover price of a few pennies already arouses one's irritation, says the following of the Ten Commandments, that it is easy to find in them the chief laws governing human life, in one half the laws relating to our conduct toward God, and in the other half those relating to our conduct toward human beings. To make things clear and understandable, the author says that the fourth commandment should be included in the first half relating to God. The fact that this gentleman manages to make one half of four and the other of six is just a small indication of how people tackle things today. The rest of the book goes on in the same kind of vein, as if four were the same as six. We are concerned here with the explanation given to the Jewish people of the right way for the I to permeate the three human levels or aspects. The most important thing which we meet already in the first commandment is the statement, If you become aware of this I as a spark of divinity, you must experience in the I a spark, an emanation of the highest, most powerful divinity which participates in the creation of the earth. Let us remind ourselves what we have learned about the human being's evolution. We said that the human physical body arose during existence on ancient or old Saturn, where gods were working upon it. Then on old sun, the ether body was added. The way in which both bodies were further elaborated was likewise the work of divine spiritual beings. Then, on Old Moon, the astral body was incorporated, all as the work of divine spiritual beings. What then made us into human beings, in the sense we understand it today, was the incorporation of our I on earth. The highest divine power collaborated in this. Therefore, as long as the human being was not yet able to become fully conscious of this fourth aspect, he could not have any intimation either of the highest divine power that participates in his development and exists within him. As a human being, we have to say that divine beings worked upon my physical body, but these are not as great as the Godhead that has now endowed me with the eye. The same is true of the ether body and astral body. The Jewish people, therefore, who first received the prophetic annunciation of this I, had to be made aware that the peoples around them worshipped gods, who, in accordance with their current stage of evolution, can work upon astral body, ether body, and physical body, but they cannot work upon the I. This God, who works in the I, was always present. He announced himself in his creative workings, but only now did he proclaim his name. In recognizing and paying tribute to the other gods, the human being is not free. Here he is a being who worships the gods of his lower aspects. But when the human being becomes aware of the god of whom a part exists in his eye, then he is a free being, one who relates to his fellow men as a free being. Today we do not have the same relationship to our astral body, ether body, and physical body as we do to our I. We inhabit this I, 
as the entity with which we are in closest direct connection. We will only have such a relationship to our astral body once we have transformed it into manas and to our ether body when we have transformed it into buddhi, developing it into divine nature through our I. Although the I was the last aspect to emerge, it is nevertheless the one in which we dwell. And when we encompass the I, we therefore encompass something in which the divine comes to meet us in its immediate most intrinsic form. The current forms of our astral body, ether body and physical body, by contrast, were configured by preceding gods. Thus, unlike the people of Israel, other peoples around them worshipped divinities who had worked upon these lower aspects of the human being. And when an image was made of these lower divinities, it resembled some form or other that existed on earth or in the sky or between the sky and earth. For you see, all we bear within us is spread out through the rest of nature. If we make images of the mineral realm that can only represent to us the gods who worked on the physical body, let me read that again. If we make images of the mineral realm, they can only represent to us the gods who worked on the physical body. If we make images out of the plant kingdom, they can only represent to us the divinities who worked on the ether body, since we have the ether body in common with the world of plants. And images drawn from the animal kingdom can only symbolize for us the gods who worked on the astral body. But what makes the human being the crowning glory of creation is what he encompasses in his eye. No outer image can express this. And this was why it had to be explained and emphasized to the Jewish people in no uncertain terms that they contained within them a direct emanation of the current highest level of divine nature which could not be symbolized in an image drawn from the mineral, plant, or animal kingdom, however lofty such an image might be. All gods worshipped in this way, they were told, are lower than the god who lives in their eye. If they desired to worship this god within them, the others must withdraw. And then the Jewish people would bear within them the healthy true power of their eye. What we find straight away in the first of the Ten Commandments is therefore connected with the deepest mysteries of human evolution. Quote, I am the eternal divine nature that you sense within you. The power that I planted in your I became the impetus, the strength to lead you out of the land of Egypt where you were unable to follow or hearken to me within you. Close quote. Moses led his people out of Egypt. And to make all this quite clear to us, special emphasis is placed on the fact that Yahweh wished to make his people into a nation of priests. The wise priests of other nations were those who were free as distinct from the rest of the people. Such emancipated figures knew of the great secret of the eye and also of the I-God, who could not be pictorially represented. In such lands, therefore, there was a division between the wise priests 
aware of the I, and the great unliberated masses who could only hear and obey what the priests in their strictest authority permitted to issue from the mysteries. Individual members of the people did not have this immediate relationship, but instead the wise priests mediated it to them, and therefore all well-being and wholesomeness in life depended on the former. Well-being and health depended on the way they established institutions and organized everything. I would have to speak at great length to describe the deeper meaning of the Egyptian temple sleep to you and its effect on the nation's health, to describe the healing folk remedies that emanated from such rites, such as the Apis culture, APIS. Amongst a people of this kind, the whole nation was governed and guided through initiate leadership that enabled healing fluide to emanate from these mystery centers. This was now set to change. The Jewish people were to become a nation of priests. Every single individual was to feel within himself a spark of this Yahweh God and enter into a direct relationship with Him. No longer was the wise figure of the priest to act as sole mediator. And therefore the whole people had to be instructed in this, being shown that false images, thus the lower images of the highest God, also have an unsalutary effect. This brings us to a domain which it is hard for modern people to gain and any idea about, resulting in enormous transgressions. Only if we can delve into spiritual science can we discover the mysterious way in which health and sickness develop. If you walk through the streets of a city, the atrocious things in advertisements and shop windows exert a baleful influence on your soul. Materialistic scientists have no sense at all of the capacity of these dire things to cause disease. They seek pathogens merely in bacilli, unaware that health and sickness are introduced into the body via the soul. Here, only a humanity that acquaints itself with spiritual science will learn the significance of absorbing one or another kind of pictorial image. Above all, the first commandment states that henceforth a person must be able to conceive how above and beyond what is expressed in pictorial images, a non-pictorial impulse borders on the supersensible realm at this, quote, I point, close quote. Quote, strongly feel this I within you, and feel it such that a divine nature, higher than anything you can express in an image, weaves and surges through you in this I, In such a feeling you have a salutary power that will render you healthy in physical ether and astral body. A strong health-giving eye impulse was to be mediated here to the Jewish people. If this eye is rightly recognized, then astral, etheric and physical bodies will be well formed, thus engendering strong life forces and health-bestowing powers which emanating from each individual are conveyed to the whole people. Since the tradition was to think of a people 
in terms of a thousand generations, the Yahweh God stated that proper incorporation of the eye would render the human being a source of radiating health. And the people, as the Bible expresses it, would remain a healthy nation, quote, through to the thousandth generation, close quote. But if the eye is not understood in the right way, the body withers and becomes sick and ailing. If a father does not properly integrate the nature of the eye in his soul, his body will become sick and ailing, and the eye will gradually withdraw. His son will be still more ailing, the grandson even more so, and ultimately we will be left only with an empty casing from which the Yahweh God has withdrawn. If the eye impulse is not brought to bear, this lack will eventually work right through into the fourth aspect of our being and cause degeneration of the physical body. Thus we see how in the first of the Ten Commandments Moses presents to the Jewish people the doctrine of the right action of the I. Quote, I am the eternal divine that you sense within you. I led you out of the land of Egypt where you could not hearken to me in you. Henceforth you shall not place other gods above me. You shall not accept as higher gods whatever, working out of the earth or between heaven and earth, shows you an image of something that shines above in heaven. You shall not worship what of all this is lower than the divine in you. For I am the eternal in you that works into the body and therefore works upon coming generations. I am divine nature whose influence persists. If you do not recognize me in you, I will vanish as your divine nature in your children, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren, and their body will grow barren. If you recognize me in you, I will live on as you into the thousandth generation, and the bodies of your people will flourish. Close quote. We can see here that this is not merely an abstract idea, but something that should live and work right into the health of a people. The external process of health is led back to its origin in the spirit, which is proclaimed to humanity by developing degrees. The second commandment indicates this especially, where it is expressly said, quote, You shall not form wrong ideas of my name of what lives in you as I. For a true idea makes you healthy and full of life and is wholesome for you, whereas a false idea will corrupt your body. Thus every member of the Hebrew people of Moses is told in particular that whenever the name of God is uttered, he should receive it as an admonishment to recognize the name of what has entered into him as it lives within him, for this will engender health. Quote, you shall not speak of me in you in error, for every error regarding the I in you will corrupt your body. Close quote. And then in the third commandment, we find a strict indication of the fact that as an active creating I, the human being 
is a microcosm. The Yahweh God created for six days and rested on the seventh, and this serves as an archetype to be reflected in human creativity. The third commandment expressly states, As a true I, you as a human being are also a reflection of your highest God, and in your deeds you should act as does your God. Thus human beings are urged here to ever more closely resemble the God who revealed himself to Moses in the burning bush. Quote, you shall divide working day from feast day, so that your existence may become an image of my existence. For what lives in you as I made the world in six days, and on the seventh day lived within itself. Therefore your actions, and those of your son, and your daughter, and your servants' actions, and those of your cattle, and of all else that dwells with you, shall be directed outwardly for only six days. But on the seventh day your gaze shall seek me in you. Now the Ten Commandments start to increasingly focus on the individual. But this is always in the context of the idea of Yahweh or Jehovah being always at work as enduring power. In the fourth commandment, we are led outward from relationship with the supersensible to external sensory reality. This fourth commandment accentuates something very important, and this should be understood. Where a person enters existence as a self-aware I, he requires external means to enact this existence. He develops what we can call individual property and possessions. If we go back to the ancient Egyptian era, the great mass of the people do not yet have individual possessions in this way. We would find that only the wise priests make decisions about property. But now, with every individual seeking to develop an individual eye, Each person finds it necessary to intervene in external reality and have something of his own around him in order to embody his eye in the outer world. The fourth commandment, therefore, indicates that a person who allows the individual eye to work within him acquires possessions, but that this property remains bound to the power of the eye that endures in the Jewish people and is to be transmitted from father to son to grandson, and that the property the father owned will not be subject to the strong power of the eye if the son should not continue the work of his father under the sway of the father. It is therefore said, Let the eye grow so strong in you that it endures, and that with the means the son inherits from the father He may also preserve the means to live his way outwardly into his external surroundings. Thus the conservatism of the spirit of ownership is intentionally given to the people of Moses at this period. The other laws likewise are underpinned by an awareness that occult forces underlie everything that happens in the world. Whereas today... People regard the law of inheritance in only very external and abstract ways. Those who properly understood the fourth commandment knew that spiritual powers are transmitted with inherited property, living on from one generation to the next, 
and intensifying I power. In this way, the I power of each individual is enhanced by something that flows to it from the Father's I power. The fourth commandment cannot be translated in a more grotesquely erroneous way than it usually is, for the real meaning is as follows. Strong I power should be developed in you, living on after you, and this shall pass to the Son, so that his I power shall be enhanced by something that can work on in him as the estate of his forefathers. Quote, Uphold the ways of your father and mother, so that you shall remain in possession of the estate that they have acquired through the power I have developed in them. Close quote. And then, all subsequent laws are also founded on the fact that human eye power is enhanced through the proper realization of the eye impulse, but that false employment of this will destroy it. The fifth commandment says something that can really only be properly understood through spiritual science. Everything connected with killing and destroying another's life weakens self-aware I power in the human being. By this means one can intensify black magic forces in a person, but only by enhancing human astral forces and bypassing I power. Every form of killing destroys the divine nature of the perpetrator. This law does not therefore invoke something abstract, but also something that allows esoteric forces to stream toward a person's eye power when he enhances life, helps it to thrive and flourish, and does not destroy it. This is established here as an ideal for enhancement of individual eye power. And only in less strongly accentuated domains is the same thing invoked in the sixth and seventh commandment. Marriage establishes a center for eye power. Whoever breaks a marriage is therefore weakened in what should flow into eye power. In the same way, anyone who desires to acquire possessions by taking or stealing from another, thus trying to deprive him of some of his eye power, weakens his own eye power. The guiding thought underlying this too is that the eye should not weaken itself, and then In the last three commandments, it is even indicated that giving a false direction to one's desires will also weaken eye power. The life of desires has great significance for eye power. Love enhances the power of the eye, while resentment or hatred lays waste to it. If a person hates another, therefore, disparaging him by saying something untrue about him, he weakens eye power diminishing the health and life force of everything around him. The same is true of envy of another's possessions. Merely desiring another's possessions renders his eye power weak. The same is said in the Tenth Commandment of someone who looks enviously on the way in which his neighbor seeks his advancement rather than endeavoring to love him, thus enlarging his soul and allowing the power of his eye to flourish. Only when we understand by this the special power of the Yahweh God and consider the way in which he revealed himself to Moses can we understand the distinctive kind of consciousness 
that is now intended to flow into the people, founded everywhere not on abstract laws, but on provisions that are healthy and salutary in the broadest sense for body, soul, and spirit. Whoever abides by these commandments, not in an abstract, but in a living way, acts to further the wholesomeness, health, and overall advancement of life. At the time they were given, there was no other way to manifest these things than to issue the commandments as decrees that should be followed in a certain way. The other nations lived in a quite different way from the Jewish people and did not need commandments of this kind, of such meaning and intent. When studying the Ten Commandments today, our scholars and academics translate them with dictionary in hand and compare them with other laws, such as the law of Hammurabi, and this shows that they have no sense whatever of the presiding impulse at work in them. Thou shalt not steal, or thou shalt sanctify this or that feast day, are not the important thing. What matters here is the spirit flowing through these Ten Commandments and how this spirit is connected with the spirit of this people in whose midst Christianity was created. If we wish to understand this work of the Ten Commandments at all, we have to sense and feel everything involved in the developing autonomy, the emerging priesthood of each and every member of this people. Today we do not live at all, excuse me, today we do not at all live in an age where such things can be experienced so tangibly as the members of the Jewish people experienced them. This is why modern translations impose all kinds of dictionary-driven interpretations that do not correspond to the spirit of the commandments. We read suggestions such as that the Mosaic people emerged from a Bedouin tribe and that therefore the same kind of laws could not be given to them as would be given to a nation of farmers. And this is the reason academics conclude why the Ten Commandments must have been given at a later date and were later attributed to an earlier time. If the Ten Commandments were really what these gentlemen surmise, they would be right. But they do not understand their real origins. It is true that the Jews were originally a kind of Bedouin people, but these commandments were given them so that they could progress through the impulse of I-power toward an entirely new era. This is the best demonstration of the fact that nations develop and are formed out of the Spirit. One can scarcely imagine a greater prejudice than to say that in Moses' day the Jewish people were a nomadic, Bedouin people. What point would there possibly have been then in giving them the Ten Commandments? It was meaningful to give such laws to the Jewish people so that they might be informed as strongly as possible by the I impulse. This people received the Ten Commandments so as to give their outward life an entirely new form, because an entirely new kind of life was to be created out of the Spirit. The Ten Commandments thus exerted an ongoing influence, and this is why insightful early Christians also refer to the Law of Moses. They see how the eye impulses changed through the mystery of Golgotha from what it was at the time of Moses. They acknowledge that the eye impulse is deeply imbued with the spirit of the Ten Commandments and that the people grew strong when they adhered to these laws. Now, though, 
they say, something new has come. Now we have the figure upon whom the mystery of Golgotha is founded. Now this eye can gaze upon what passed in such hidden form through the ages, upon the greatest aspect it can acquire, rending it, rendering it strong and powerful as it seeks to emulate the one who suffered at Golgotha, who is the greatest exemplar for the future of evolving humanity. For those, therefore, who really understood Christianity, Christ replaced the impulses that worked in a preparatory way in the Old Testament. And thus we see that there truly is a deeper way to view the Ten Commandments. The end of Lecture 9